Father, for the Lord Jesus, thank you for the songs that we've sung about him. Thank you for the update, the news of him at work through all sorts of people, particularly through Annie, as we've heard this morning, but through us as well. As you continue to work in all the different ministry activities as Pastor David praying. So, Lord, speak to us now by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see truth, to embrace it and to be moved and changed by it. And may we be a people like this scene in heaven who are passionate about the Lamb of God. To him be all honour and glory and praise. And everyone said? We've started this series on Revelation and... uh, It's not usual that I find myself, you know, we're about three weeks into a series before I get to address the issue. (coughs) So just a couple of words of introduction. I don't have a lot of time this morning, as you will appreciate. So I'm sort of going to fly through some of these things. It's important for us to be tolerant and to be patient, to immerse ourselves in the text of Scripture. So I encourage you to read and to reread and to reread the book of Revelation over and over and over. Don't get lost in the details. Nobody understands them anyway. But you will get a picture and you will start to see repetitions and you will start to discover patterns and that will guide you in your interpretation and understanding. I read about a dozen commentaries this week on the passage that we're about to read and listened to a couple of podcasts of speakers and the worst comment I came across was one commentator who very arrogantly said, The meaning of this, and the reference he's referring to, is the meaning of the 24 elders on 24 thrones. The meaning of this is blatantly obvious to any serious student of the Bible. Clearly it means, and he gave his opinion. It was arrogant and opinionated. And he might be right, but he might be wrong. And so my warning to us is that as we work through this very difficult book, the pinnacle of God's revelation to us, You'll find yourself continually flipping back to the Old Testament to try and understand the images and the pictures that are here. So let's be positive. Let's get the best that we can out of this. I mean, God gave it to us for a reason. Though we can't understand all of it fully, nonetheless, there are truths there for us to discover and to embrace, and particularly the spiritual lessons. But the bottom line is, it's all about Jesus. He's the Lamb. He is the King. He is the Sender. He is the one who gives the message in chapter 1. It's him in chapter 2 who gives the letter to the churches. In this passage, it's the lamb who was adored in chapter 6 to 19. It's the wrath of the lamb that is going to work out the purposes of God. In chapter 19, it's the marriage supper of the lamb, chapter 20 and 22, the end of the book. It's the reign of the lamb. It's all about him. So look for him. While I was overseas on long service lead, I read a couple of books on Revelation because I knew I was coming back to talk about this book. One of the books I read, which I commend to you, is one called Four Views on Revelation. And I read it. I read it about one and a half times. And I read the first view. I have a particular view. When I read the first view, I went, oh, that view is not as stupid as I thought it was. That's pretty good. I was impressed by that. That's the Praetorist view. That's the view that says all of Revelation was fulfilled way back in the first century, the destruction of Jerusalem. I think they're wrong. Outstanding Bible scholars today have that view. I read the second view, which is the idealist view, the spiritual view. And when I read that, I really liked that one. And I became a little bit more of that, of saying the book of Revelation has spiritual truth for us, which has to be applied to our life. So I enjoyed that. Then I read the historical 
dispensational view, which is the category that I was in before, that I think I am premillennial, I think, and that, uh, but I think I'm here for the tribulation, and the Lord Jesus will return at the end of the tribulation, he'll set up his millennial kingdom on the earth, Satan will then be released, and then there's judgment, eternal heaven and earth. And I read that, and that was my view, and I thought, oh, that's okay, but I can see some weaknesses in that view now. And then I read the more traditional, probably the most popular view, which is the classical dispensational view. That Jesus, premillennial, that Jesus could come at any time. That he'll come, and when he comes, he'll come to the clouds of the earth, and there'll be a rapture, and all of the church, all Christians will suddenly disappear. And then there are seven years left on the earth where the Antichrist will let fly and there'll be a massive movement of God through the gospel through the Jewish people and Jewish evangelists and many people will come to faith um, and many there'll be many martyrs for the faith the end of the seven years the Lord Jesus then returns and destroys the evil one locks him up for a thousand years there's a millennium on the earth and then a judgment at eternity when you read that you think yeah yeah there's a lot of scripture and there's a lot of understanding for it so when I had read the four views all I succeeded in doing was raising the level of my understanding and confusion to here. <laughs> my point is this. Brilliant scholars believe that view, that view, that view, and that view. What's my view? Well, I'm a little bit eclectic. I take some of that one and some of that one and some of that one and some of that one. The trouble with my view... <clears throat> I run the very serious risk of being inconsistent because I'm not in a particular view. And so I plead with you, be tolerant, be patient. By all means, disagree. By all means, come and discuss, not just with, don't disagree with me, <laughs> come and discuss with one another and share and say, Lord, open my eyes to see what does this mean? And we'll get such a small glimpse of that this morning. This is the most significant of all the 500 references to heaven in the scriptures. This, these two chapters uh, by far give us the most detail. There are other glimpses in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and a prophet called Micaiah. And there's the Exodus 24 with the 70 elders up there. They all have this description. But here, and the Apostle Paul, of course, who was caught up to the third heaven, heard and saw things which he was not, he was forbidden to talk about. Not given permission to talk about it. Here is John, end of the first century probably, who is now taken to heaven and is not only shown things but is required to take notes and to give this revelation to us, to the church. And so he says, let's jump through this passage um, lightning quick. Verse 1, after these things, <clears throat> after the vision of chapter 1, after the letters to the church, churches, now, next, after these things, next vision. You'll find that phrase four, five, six times through the book of Revelation, after these things, after this, look for it. But I say to you, these are not clues of the chronological development of these events that he is going to see. Rather, after this is a reference to, here is the next part of the vision that I had. After this, here is the next part of the vision that Jesus gave me. And the vision is not in chronological sequence or order. I think there's a lot of... Uh, backflipping and toing and froing in the book of Revelation and you'll need to read it carefully and that's the pattern certainly that I see. John, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And if I don't say anything else this morning, get that. There's a door open in heaven. Of course, this is the vision that John sees. 
But I love the implication of it and what some evangelists once said, that the Lord Jesus left heaven, came to earth, died, rose again, and when he went back to heaven, he left the front door open so that all who love and follow him can find their way in. There's a way back to God. A door stands open. And anyone who believes, anyone who may wants to come, can come. John sees a store standing open in heaven. He hears a voice. It's the voice of Jesus from chapter 1. It's the voice that sounds like a trumpet. It's crisp, it's clear, it's summoning, it's powerful. And Jesus says to John, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. This is the fulfilment of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, where God gives a revelation to his son Jesus, who is to show the church what is about to happen. This is now the fulfilment of it. This is Jesus showing the church what the Father gave him. John, verse 2 says, I was in the Spirit. There's a clue. This is a visionary state. This is, it's like in a dream. You've had dreams, and some dreams can be weird, can't they? Things are not consistent. Weird things happen in dreams, but they can nonetheless still contain meaning. So in this vision, it's not something he is observing with his physical eyes or hearing with his physical ears. He is in the spirit. He's in a visionary state. And they are spiritually true and real, not literally physically real. So you'll, talk, you'll dream about a seven-headed dragon and, and so on and, and a couple of weird creatures in the passages that are before us this morning. Significantly... What does John see when he enters the door and when he responds to the voice, he sees a throne. And this throne, particularly in chapter 4, is central. John focuses, he's obsessed with the throne, the centre of the throne room of heaven. God is about to unravel human history and pour out his judgment. Before he does, he takes John into the very headquarters, the throne room of heaven itself, control centre, to let John know Regardless of what's coming, I'm in control. Sovereign Lord, on the throne. And so you read through chapter 1, I'm not going to be able to do too much of this, but it talks about the one who is on the throne, it talks about those who are around the throne, it talks about those who are before the throne, it talks about those, even what is directed towards the throne. Praise, adoration and glory. So John sees a throne and he sees someone sitting on it, and he describes that person. He actually doesn't describe the person of God because he is indescribable. And it's actually forbidden in the scriptures to look upon him or to describe him. What John is describing is the, the emanation, the, the radiance of God's glory. That's what he's describing. And he uses a word like jasper and ruby. There's lots of stuff we can get lost in here, isn't there? Around the throne and encircling it, there is a rainbow, a green rainbow. The reminder of God's covenant of peace. The rainbow appears four times in scripture. Each time it's associated with God's presence and with his judgment. And here in heaven, John sees this green, dominant green rainbow. God's covenant faithfulness still to his purposes. Around the throne for the very first time, he sees also 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones are elders. Nobody knows who they are. Some people think, they are humans, representative elected humans. Some people erroneously think it's the 12 apostles and it's the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and those 24 are the 24 elders around the throne. That's unlikely because the 24 are never spoken of as 12 and 12, it's always 24. My opinion, and there are reasons, I'll give you one, 
I, I don't think they're human, I think they're angels. I think they're a high class of angelic beings. And the main reason why I say that, because over in chapter 5 and verse 10, whenever they talk about redemption or salvation, they don't include themselves. They talk about it in the third person. And those 24 elders say that Jesus has made them, the redeemed, them, not us, them. And so they are distinct from those who have been redeemed and therefore they're not human, therefore I think they're angelic beings. Is it really important? No, because if it was, then he would have told us. But it is interesting to pursue that and to consider it and so on. And there are about five or six reasons why that's not accepted by many commentators. Nonetheless, that's my view. From the throne, thunder and lightning. He sees lightning, he hears the rumble of thunder, he hears the clap of thunder. This is again a picture of a firestorm of God's fury is about to be unleashed. While everything is controlled, things are becoming agitated, things are beginning to warm up. The lamb is about to undo the seals, wrath is about to be poured out. But still his vision, he sees before the throne seven blazing lamps and torches, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make sense to us, does it? <clears throat> but the Holy Spirit, though invisible and though omnipresent, occasionally reveals himself in a physical domain. He did as a dove. He did on the day of Pentecost when he appeared as tongues of fire. And he does again here when he is the seven blazing torches. Not little, nice little cute candles that are giving off a nice soft glow. These are large outdoor blazing torches. Scripture says our God is a consuming fire. That's the picture. The comfort of the Holy Spirit who is there for those who love Christ will be a consuming fire for those who reject him. And then around the throne also, near those flaming torches, is a sea of glass. It's smooth. A sense of calm, a sense that things are in control. It's brilliant and shining and sparkling according to Revelation 21. There's a separation between the throne and all the creatures around it. And yet it's also possible to approach. Verses 6b and down to 8 then now, this is chapter 4. Around the throne and close to the throne there are these four strange creatures. If you read Isaiah chapter 6 then you'll come to the conclusion that I have, I would think, that they're seraphim. They're not cherubim like Ezekiel saw. They are distinct from and different to but like them. They are the highest echelon of the angels. They have four faces, they have six wings, and there are four of them for the four compasses around the throne. When you put all of that together, my conclusion is these living creatures, these beings, angelic, powerful beings, are bold, they are diligent, they are wise, and they are swift. With six wings, they cover their face like an Isaiah, that's reverence. They cover their feet, that's humility. And with two, they fly, that's obedience. They are reverent, humble, and obedient, and they ceaselessly, energetically are praising the one who sits on the throne. These living creatures represent general creation and the 24 elders represent special creation. I think I'm giving you far too much detail. <clears throat> what did they say? Holy, holy, holy. In all that God does, in the past, holy. In the present, holy. In the future, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Almighty the most powerful one, for whom there is no weaknesses, the one who is eternal. Whenever the four living creatures 
say that whenever they utter holy, 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 the 24 elders get off their throne and they lay themselves, they bow down before the throne and they take their crown, not their diadem, it's not a kingly crown, not a ruler's crown, it's a golden wreath, it's the victor's crown. And they take that off and lay that before the throne. And they utter those very famous words of Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. They praise God as the creator. But then when you get to chapter 5, there is a change. John continues to look, and in the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne, he sees a book, a scroll. And the scroll is written on it and it's sealed up with seven seals because it's a significant document. Read Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It's the same scroll. Gives you some more details. And then a search is made for someone who can receive this scroll and undo it. This revelation, this outworking of God's purposes. Search is made. The angel with a booming voice that penetrates the universe. No one is found. No one without exception is found. John begins to weep because he realises, overwhelmed with grief and dismay, that the earth is under the curse and the control of Satan and that unless God's judgement revealed in this scroll, sealed up document, unless someone can impact and implement that, then we will be forever under the curse. John weeps prematurely. One of the elders says to him, stop weeping and look. The line of the tribe of Judah has overcome. No one else in all of creation, without exception, is worthy. Not Abraham, not David, not Mary, none of the above, no one, none of the angels, just one, the lamb, the lion and the root of David. He is the one who can take the scroll and open it, and he does, and he goes to the father on the throne, and he takes the, scr the scroll. Read Daniel chapter 7. Verses 9 and 10 talks about exactly the same instance. And that'll give you some details of what's coming in the scroll. In the book of Revelation, a scroll is never actually read. But as Jesus undoes the seals, dramatic action follows the implications of it. John heard and he turns to see this line of the tribe of Judah. And when he turns to see, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. Not a sheep. A lamb almost like a baby lamb, standing, but bloodied, wounded, because it had been slain. The Lord Jesus, the lamb, gave his life for us. And John says he saw this lamb that had seven horns. Seven is perfection and horns represent strength and power. This lamb has perfect power. <clears throat> the one with perfect power lays his hands down to be slain on behalf of us. Seven eyes, which is the seven spirits of God. He took the scroll. And as soon as he takes it, spontaneous praise ripples out. You read chapter 5, 8 to 14. You'll find firstly it's the four living creatures and the 24 thrones, the elders, who are praising him. Suddenly, note this. There's this sudden transformation Having in chapter 4 focused upon the one seated on the throne and praising him as the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, <clears throat> the one who is, who was, who is to come, it's the Father. Praising him at the centre of heaven. Suddenly, all eyes turn to the Lamb and all praise and worship and honour is directed to him. 
in the sight of and in the presence of the Father. This clearly indicates to us that Jesus Christ is divine, that he is God. How inappropriate to worship and to honour and to magnify him if he were not so, but he is. 24 elders and the four living creatures offer their praise and worship. That leads to then millions and millions of angels outside of them doing exactly the same thing, this spontaneous praise. It's loud. Worthy is the Lamb. He's worthy to receive everything from everyone. And then it finishes with this universal crescendo. Verse 13, then, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and all that in them is. No one, without exception, is worthy to take the scroll except the Lamb. No one, without exception, in all of creation, will refuse to worship him. In heaven, earth, under the earth, and on the sea. And they were saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Forever praise, endless honour, endless glory, endless power be to him. The four living creatures go a little bit Pentecostal and they say... Amen. Which means we totally and fully approve and agree. 24 elders on their throne get off their throne and bow before the Lamb. Total submission before Him. What does all of this mean for us? Three things. One, the throne of God. John's vision reminds us that God rules and God reigns. His hand superintends all. Right now. In our lives. This throne is a throne of grace. This is where grace originates, grace is dispensed, and this is where grace brings sinners to be in a relationship with God through that door into a relationship with the Lord Jesus. God is great and he is gracious. He is good. He is almighty and he is merciful. Question, how is that being worked out in your life? He calls there for us to trust him and to obey him. The throne of grace will become a throne of judgment. You either see the Lord Jesus as the lamb and receive him as the one who rescues you. But if you reject him, then you'll meet him as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the judge, the one who holds the judgment of God in his hand and who will be implementing its outworking in human history, the throne of God. The scroll reminds us that God is a God of purpose, that he has a plan, that he has a will. And that through his providence, he is a God who was at work in our world to accomplish his plan. This scroll was written on both sides. It's full. It's complete. Nothing to be added. Nothing to be removed. It is sealed. Or it was sealed. It's unknown. Unless the Lord Jesus reveals it to us. Which brings me to the third point. The throne, the scroll, the lamb. God conquers through the lamb. And now through his followers, we are working with him, working with God. Everything that God has for us is in the Lamb, provided by the Lamb, revealed through the Lamb, designed to bring honour and praise to the Lamb. The Lamb is God's ultimate purpose for everyone, should bow before him and should honour and glorify him, the Son, the Lamb of God. We are to do that now voluntarily, or we will do that 
like chapter 5 verse 13 says to us, everybody in all creation will do it involuntarily, but everybody without exception will do it. They will bow and they will acknowledge. That's what Paul says, Philippians 2, therefore God has exalted him and placed him in the highest place and given him a name which is above every name so that everyone in heaven, on earth, under the earth will acknowledge and glorify that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Lamb. He is the one who is to be the focus and the centre. You might be a person who agrees, yep, we should worship God as the creator. Well, the scripture says, and we should also worship God as our redeemer. What does heaven sing about? The cross and the lamb. And so should we, and so will we. And the lamb says, the passage says, and the lamb has made us a kingdom and priest to serve our God. We've been moved from rubbish to royalty. And now we exercise through our prayer, through our good works, through our godly behavior, his kingdom rule. And he invites us to join him in what he is doing because the lamb is working out the purposes of God. One thing is necessary, like Martha found at the feet of Jesus, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, to acknowledge that he is on the throne, to trust him to work his purposes out, the scroll, and to stay focused and loyal to the one who is the lamb, the one who has acted on our behalf, who is acting on our behalf and who is yet to act, who will come for us to take us to be with him forever. All praise and glory and honour to the Lamb forever and ever. And everyone said? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, give us the opportunity and nudge and remind us by your spirit to take extra time today, this week, to reread these chapters, to listen to your spirit and to respond to these truths. You are the sovereign God. Lord, we bow before your throne. You're the God who has planned and ordained. You've written the scroll already. The destiny of the world does not lie in the hands of a few politicians or people. It lies in your hands. And Lord Jesus is the Lamb. Assist us and cause us to love you, to focus on you, to be completely obedient to you. And may we, like the elders and the living creatures and the angels of glory, worship and adore you. So now to him who sits on the throne throne, and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said and bow down and worship. God bless you, everybody. Have a good, safe week.